Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on trends and innovations in the worlds of music and technology. We have three very different segments with people representing three very different parts of the media landscape. In our first segment, the spotlight shines on Jesse Kirschbaum and Clayton Durant, who together penned the Beats, Bites, and Brand column for Adweek. In a recent piece, the two broke down the four trends that defined the second quarter of 2022 and offered their insights into what Q3 will hold. Our second segment shines the spotlight on Key Lee, Chief Marketing Officer of Kizwe, the interactive global live streaming platform powering Guinness World Record-breaking online concerts with megastars like BTS, Justin Bieber, and Queen. And in our final segment, the spotlight shines on Michael Porter, co-founder and CEO of Needle Music, billed as the world's first social platform built to facilitate meaningful connections through music. Michael joins us to share his belief in the power of music and his aim to create a space that promotes all music in a genuine, positive way. So here we go. Let's get started with Jesse Kirschbaum and Clayton Durant. What I was interested in talking about was the, the mid-year piece that you guys did with the look back of the first half of the year and then some look forward as to what you think the trends in music and brands are going to be through the end of the year. And as I thought about it, I think I maybe would like to spend more time talking about what you think is to come. But I think some of the things you identified as what were some key activities in uh, the first half of the year are super interesting. One of the first things you talked about or the first thing you talked about was this notion of the curation of sonic identities and owning ear share. And I think I get that when I see the sentence, but I wonder if you could unpack a little bit about what that means and talk about the examples of, of that that you saw in the market. Yeah, absolutely. I'll frame it and then I'll let Clay dive in deeper onto the examples. Again, this is just Q2. So this is just like for the spring and early summer, what we're referencing here. Cool. But it has been a lot about this kind of owning the ear share is the term. And it's, it's really about sonic identity and building a plan that can get a brand more relevant in the headphones. And we see this so much happening in the ear right now between the podcast world and the playlist world that brands are trying to figure out how to build more relevance by making inroads into that space. And it's really about sonic identities for them. How do you create a sound that you can resonate with for a brand? So when you talk about share of ear, I think it's important to contextualize why right now ears are such an important part of, and, and this is a uh, coined term for MasterCard when I met with them, sensatory marketing is what they kind of contextualized it as. It's not just about sound, but if you look at MasterCard as kind of like a blueprint, they have sense that resonate to MasterCard. They actually have a MasterCard that is touched and feel for people who are visually impaired. So they really think about the senses as kind of like 
this new pioneering space for marketers to really delve into. And the wow. reason, you know, share of ear is such a kind of interesting place to start is just look at the data, right? When you look at music streaming, the latest Luminate report showed that there was more music streaming happening in the first half of this year than there was in the same period of time last year. And this has been a consistent trend that has been pretty well documented around the growth of the music business on the back of streaming. To add on top of that, look at the smart speaker market, right? That that market has continued to show hockey stick-like growth, whether you look at the Amazon Alexa or the Google Home or whatever kind of product it is that you want, smart speakers are becoming a bigger and bigger piece. And then the last layer on top of that is look at the way that everybody uses social media platforms. When you think of TikTok, for example, right? They are the fastest app in the world to have gained a billion users faster than Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Any of those apps, they've, they've outpaced all of them. And the reason, in my opinion, is that they've really understood the role sound plays in content and virality, right? And everything that we do has a sound integration piece to it. And I think there's a moment now where brands are starting to understand that it's not just about the visuals that you're putting out into the marketplace, but, but, but the sonics that people are willing to hear and absorb. And then that is the new space to compete. And that's really what we talk about to kind of contextualize what share of ear really means. If we talk about a visual identity, there are things like shape, color, texture. Does the sonic identity in this context actually imply things like a specific tone or a sound? Like, are they trying to create a sensory brand using audio so that you hear that jingle or tone or introduction and you know it's theirs? Let me bring MasterCard in as an example, right? Because that was a a brand that we highlighted like pretty highly in terms of the the, the latest Adweek piece. MasterCard is a brand that operates globally, right? They have MasterCards in every country around the world. But what they did with the album, which was really interesting, was when you actually went through it sonically, they attached certain sounds that are really, really relevant to different regions of the world, right? Mm. So r- sounds that may be relevant to India were, were entwined in the album. Sounds that are more maybe common to American music and, and pop music were entwined in the album, particularly with the remix of with Timberland. When we're talking about this sonic identity, I think it really is about creating something that doesn't feel like an advertisement and just feels naturally a part of consumers day to day. And a big part of consumers day to day is listening to music. And that's why we see so many brands thinking about their sonic identity as not just a little ting or a little jingle. And that's an important piece. Don't get me wrong. I mean, when you open an Xbox or you open Netflix, you hear that 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 identity that 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 certain sound that kind of gives it you know it, it, its unique feel but for a lot of brands it has to go beyond that and music is just a perfect pathway to do it because everybody's consuming music and everybody wants great music now i think the challenge for brands is creating a sonic identity through music that's actually good right and that's where i think again to contextualize it with mastercard 
that's why their album was so brilliantly packaged. They didn't do it as a brand. They actually hired music experts and producers who really understood how to actually build an album and construct an album. And in particular, Timberland, who is credits upon credits and Grammys on Grammys. But the point is, is that they're music people first and they let the artists be the artists. Raja, who is the CMO of MasterCard, he actually mentioned that, and I, I'm quoting this piece, we are using our sonic DNA integration to build closer connections to those with a passion for music while staying authentic to the artist's vision and style. And I thought that the whole point of staying authentic to the artist's vision and style was important because the artist knows how to make music. The brand doesn't, but the brand has to trust that the artist can communicate their vision. So it becomes more about an oral environment that the brand is rallying around or, or presenting, putting forward something that you'd want to listen to as opposed to skip through. In that context, just, to, just for the benefit of, of the audience, did MasterCard, were they commissioning new music or was it, was it basically a compilation of existing music that was mixed or interpolated? How did, what, was the, what was the actual content? The, the actual content was all original music all original music, all different artists from different parts of the world. So you really got the Latin feel. You got the Bollywood feel. You got the American pop feel. You got all of it combined. And it was all original music. But there are brands that are thinking about their sonic identity through covers, right? A great example, not in this latest trends piece, but another piece that we did, Jesse and I, on how how brands are thinking about using music for corporate good Tommy Hilfinger synced the song um, Born to Run, which is a classic Bruce Springsteen song. And they covered the song and used Shawn Mendes to actually sing it. So you Mm. see all these young tween aged people who are like, oh man, that song's so amazing. I hope you release the full version soon. And you're like, (laughs) man, that full version's been out for a long time. So take me through then how this first point plays into the second topic you focused on, which was the brands appealing to lean back streamers. Cause it strikes me that these two points are at least adjacent, if not intimately related. When it comes to the lean back experience, it's really about cutting through the noise. So this is a chance for brands to be able to connect to their audience, but their audience are listening in kind of, a more passive way. This isn't creating necessarily a sonic identity, but how do you reach those streamers and that audience and engage them in a unique way? So is this talking more about people who are not in the quadrant? They're maybe not the hardcore, but they're people for whom music is a part of their life. They turn on the radio, they turn on a playlist they listen to a song and let it spawn a playlist as opposed to people who are sort of the hardcore making their own playlist, curating what their experience is. Is that sort of, am I thinking about that the right way? Yeah. The, the, the traditional definition of lean back, you have two different types of streamers. You have your, your, your lean in streamers who are active, who are creating playlists and you have your lean back people who, you know, love things like Sirius XM or Pandora They love, you know, just having playlists tell them what to listen to. And there's actually a specific reason why I think lean back streamers, there are more lean back streamers than there are active lean in streamers. And the first fact is that there's over 60,000 new songs a day coming on these platforms. So if you think about any given week, 
That's over a million new songs. No one has the time to go in and dwell through them, which is why culturally speaking, radio was such an important piece of music was because they would sift through everything and tell you what was the hot song. Now that that whole culture had been democratized and there aren't as many cultural influencers to tell you what kind of music is interesting and new and you know maybe applicable to a certain type of mood, that it becomes more work for the actual person who's streaming the music. And I think that's where brands are really starting to step in. And they're saying, well, first off, there's a pain point because there's too many songs to sift through. And then secondly, there's actually research that shows that as good as Spotify's playlists are, there's still a lot of work to be done. The study that I'm referencing, um, I'm just trying to pull it up here, was from Brandwatch. And they actually found that one of the biggest pain points for streamers is actually finding proper recommendations for the mood that they feel in. So there's still a long ways to go for AI and for these things to get much better. And that's something I'm pretty sure Spotify, Tidal, and Apple and all of them are working on. But this does open up a a pathway for brands to say, you know what, we can be your cultural shepherds through this crowded music space and help tell you what the hot, new, interesting songs are. What was the Bacardi use case? What did Bacardi do with this? Bacardi in particular, they partnered with Grammy-winning producer Boy Wanda, who has produced for everybody from Drake to Travis Scott, the, the, the list goes on, through Bacardi's Music Liberates Music program with the, with the real focus point on developing underrepresented emerging artists. So they took three artists and they actually tried to solve this whole like inundation of distribution to the point where, you know, you're getting those 60,000 songs in your playlist a day. And they said, well, how do we cut through the noise? What they ended up doing was they partnered with a luxury fashion brand, Nemus, and they created a capsule collection that reflected both the album and the Bacardi brand. And they released this capsule collection with this high-end fashion brand and integrated QR codes that were embedded into the clothing and created it almost like a gamification distribution model where more people who were scanning the code or interacting with the link had actual opportunities to not only listen to the album, but reward fans through tickets and, and different brand rewards. So it just kind of shows you how well thought out that this campaign was. And I think it's important to point out Bacardi is a 160-year-old brand. And Lila Magnoni, who we quoted in here, who's their uh, global head of brand marketing communications at Bacardi, actually said that even though that they're a legacy brand, music has always been a fundamental part of their marketing strategy. So it just goes to show you how important being that cultural shepherd is for a brand like Bacardi. And they're not the only ones, by the way, that are you know really thinking about doing this sort of stuff. That would actually strike me that there's a probably a correlation between having the longevity of the brand and continuing to to think like this and to make moves like this to stay to keep the brand relevant and to embrace sort of new pop culture, be part of the conversation in pop culture. Let's use this as a way now to pivot into the future because I think that that's a great sort of discussion of Q2 and and it certainly sets the groundwork for the rest of the year and and even going forward. But what are you really keeping your eye on in Q3 and beyond? And, and what's, what's got you excited and intrigued? Short form video is dominating the world. 
And I don't know if everybody realizes it. A lot of us are still stuck on Instagram, kind of making static posts. But TikTok has totally changed the game. And Instagram with their reels, YouTube with their shorts are all jumping on board. But this is now, and this is challenging because it's not necessarily native for the content creators of the past, but now you need to be making short form videos and playing to that TikTok algorithm of virality. So that is a huge shift in the way brands are going to be making content and the way artists got to be thinking about their content strategies. It's really all about short form video to disconnect and, and to play these algorithms the right way on social. So to not be unfair about it, but since you guys bring it up, in terms of prognostication or, or, or reading the tea leaves a little bit, how do those points manifest on the short term? Like, What should we be looking for in Q3 and 4 to say, this is a direct implication of the short form sort of revolution? So here at Mike Worldwide, we've been really thinking about, particularly these short form videos, how sound is attached to that. And what people don't realize is that when you're on TikTok, there's a very clear definitive definition between user-generated content and commercial content. So when brands are making these channels and they're engaging with these deep catalogs that are owned by Sony, Warner, or Universal, um, they can't just go and use the music because that crosses into the commercial use. And the moment you make that jump into commercial, you need to go and get a proper sync license. I think as more short-form video comes to fruition... I see two different things happening. First is that brands are going to invest in more owned sounds and owned music. So the same way that MasterCard owned and created their album, they have the copyrights to go and use that in perpetuity for as long as copyright exists for them as an entity, which I think is, uh, let's say, 140 years for a corporation to go and use that in any which medium that they want without having to go back to the rights holders and to renegotiate if they want to go and use it for different territories or different mediums, right? Because the moment you go and make those changes, you have to go back to renegotiate and go back to the table. So it makes it really difficult for a brand to be like, man, we have to go through all this litigation just to get this content done. So I see more brands investing in the ownership of original sounds and in particular music so that they don't have to go through those hurdles. Secondly, I see more brands dipping into the public domain in regards to music. An example would be Elf Cosmetics came out with a holiday album around 2020. And I highly recommend that your listeners check it out. It was produced by a great company called Movers and Shakers. They took all five songs were in the public domain. And if you know your copyright, you can go in and use those, those songs without having to get the licenses because they're in the public domain. The corporation can go do it with ease and at a pretty relatively cheap rate compared to maybe going to get a sync license from one of the major labels or major publishers. They also get the notoriety of that song, right? So a lot of these public domain songs have global notoriety. So it's, I think a lot more brands are going to be investing in that space and then, you know, thirdly, I, I do see a lot more music companies thinking about creating easy licensable 
libraries that brands can just kind of pick from a la carte. Um, we've seen that with United Masters doing a deal with TikTok to create their entire library for sounds. And you know, you're a brand, you can pay 59 bucks a month or whatever the number is, go in, pay that fee, and then pick out of a library and then start to create your content that way. So I think as these short form videos, like Jesse mentioned, are coming to fruition and dominating these algorithms more, it's going to force brands to be very, very cautious around copyright and use of music because music is the underlying energy that powers all this virality. You know, I'll give your listeners an example. There's a trend on TikTok called Gentle Minions. And it's actually hysterical if you watch this. A ton of young guys who are mostly in fraternities who use this uh, rap song from this rapper Yeet. And the whole point of it is they all dress up in suits, looking like minions, going to this movie. And it got so big on TikTok that Gentle Minions became the largest movie release during, I, when was it? It was some holiday weekend over the summer. I'm blanking on it. But they did, it did, I think, over $400 million in a weekend, which is a huge amount for a movie like that. The brand was like, my God, like, all these user-generated content pieces are being attached to our movie. It's moving tickets. So now they're thinking, okay, maybe I should just go and get the sync license for this so that I can use this in our campaigns. Right. How do we make this inauthentic? Yeah. So, <laughs> so you see music is that real underlying energy and, and that oil that powers the machine. And I think brands are starting to recognize that more. So that's really how I think we see it tying into that future, at least in the short-term future. Also with AI. AI music is, is going to play more and more place in this as music content becomes important. It's really functional and more and more companies are coming up where they can just fit the music to the parameters and pull different sounds, all computer generated. That's a fascinating point. And I'll, I'm looking forward to more of your coverage on that. The, the notion that not just the AI algorithms and their ability to generate music, but the, the interfaces with the algorithm to basically give it the keywords and the cues so that you can actually fine tune what it outputs for you. That seems like it's only rapidly, rapidly accelerating. It's fascinating. All right. So I do want to talk a little bit about the Web3 space. It's, it's, it's a hard topic to sort of easily encapsulate given all the ups and downs in the space to date. But I'm curious as to whether you're seeing stability and not stability in terms of it's still a dynamic marketplace or, or, or market segment, but stability now are people building? Like what's, what's going on in Web3 and what, what do you expect to see between now and you know, the end of the quarter, end of the year? Well, first of all, let's level set on what Web3 is. Please. The way we're going to define Web3 is if it touches crypto and blockchain or it touches the metaverse, either of those sectors. To talk about what's happening in these spaces is really exciting, but also really confusing because the people that are building, the thought leaders in this space, the real pioneers all have very conflicting ideas on what the future of music NFTs looks like and what they're creating. So there is no one answer. At this point, it is wide open. If it's going to be fan clubs, if it's going to be around ticketing, if it's going to be about fractional ownership, if it's going to be about investing in an artist's ownership, if it's just going to be about the art itself, there's so many different ways to look at this. And so 
the answers are not clear, but what we do know is that this is definitely an undeniable force, a changing in the guard and a huge opportunity for a new ancillary revenue stream for artists in particular. And what's going to happen is the people that invest in this time now are going to be rewarded in the long term, the same way the first people on platforms like Twitter or Snapchat or Instagram all built huge followings that were unproportional to where they were at in their careers because they were early, they had their voice clear, and they worked that platform. I appreciate that answer. That seems like it's a very realistic and pragmatic assessment given how nascent and developing, even though it's moving fast, that really resonates. I think from the brand side, an executive at United Talent Agency really, I thought, colored it nicely too, which was for brands, this is their opportunity to give back to their community, where Web2 was all about extracting value, you know, getting the follow, getting people to buy products, whatever it was. And in Web3, it's about giving back what they took and creating more of this equitable space. And I think when you look at the branded activations that are happening, particularly as it relates to the connection point between Web3 and music, that's really kind of the baseline for how brands are thinking about it. And I'll give you a good example. Gucci launched Gucci Town in Roblox, and they recently had Miley Cyrus come in as a celebrity avatar. And for a lot of people in the Roblox community, that was a very, very big deal to get to hang out with Miley Cyrus's avatar. Now, did Gucci sell anything from that? No, not directly. But they understood the basic notion that this is, this is a framework for giving back to the people who all during the Web 2 and Web 1 and Web 2 era have been spending and giving and giving and giving. Now it's the brand's turn to kind of return the favor in some sense. Thank you so much, Jesse and Clayton. We'll be back with more Spotlight On and our next guest, Key Lee of streaming platform Kizwi, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On and our guest, Key Lee. The first question I wanted to ask you, what could you tell me about the name? What's the name mean? Is it a made-up word? Is it, <laughs> is, it a, is it a transliteration of a foreign word? What, what is a Kizwi? It's really the combination of our two main founders, their last names. Uh, there's Dr. Jung Kim, K-I-M, and then there's Wim Sweldon. So it's the S-W-E of Sweldon's, and it's the K-I of Kim, and so they created Kizwe. How does it work for you as a marketer? I'm always explaining it. <laughs> I'm, always explaining it. <laughs> I'm not the first wise ass to ask about it. <laughs> no, 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 it, it. No, it's cool. In terms of like branding and stuff like that, unique themes have their have their challenges, but people remember it. That's that's the good thing. Yeah. What I often find interesting about a brand name like that as well is that you you can invent the story around it if you're using sort of a literal word or. A lot, just a lot of words come with baggage or connotations that as a marketer, sometimes you have to work around, even if they're positives. Yeah. You know, you sort of have a blank, a blank slate to work with. That's interesting. So we don't leave any assumptions for our listeners. Mm -hmm. Give me the capsule summary of who you guys are and what you're up to. We start off as more mobile focus. It was originally called Kizwe Mobile because there was this vision that everything would be on mobile, in which a lot of things are, but our bread and butter is in video. 
and we've developed a lot of technology. I think we're up to 12 patents with our video technology in the cloud. And what we've become now, we've pivoted towards what we call more interactive video. And when you think about video streaming, live streaming, streaming in general, because you have all these streamers, is that it's generally a, a TV lean back experience. And we are believers that the next version of video is going to be much more interactive, much more two-way lean-in type experience. And when I mean interactive type video, it could be something that's more personalized. We do that in sports, and I'll go through some examples on that, to actually fans contributing to the experience. You know, we do that with concerts. You know, the two verticals that we work in are sports and live stream concerts. I'll share some examples when it comes to interactivity. It's not just chat rooms, but private chat rooms. It's uploading selfies to be part of the actual experience. Those type of little features that do add up and feel more engaging. And what that does is the engagement level is super high and the watch time on the programming is longer. In those two verticals, is it a different manifestation of the product? In other words, how does a sports client use the platform differently than a music client, other than it maybe being a one-off event in music as opposed to a league or you know a season? The way it's used in sports is, is a bit different from, actually a lot different from what we do in music. So in sports, I think, you know, Manning cast, right? You, you watch Manning cast on during Monday Night Football. The interesting thing is we've been using our technology to create Manning casts before Manning casts ever existed. And what I mean by that is you know, we've been working with the NBA through their NBA League Pass to better super serve audiences. And the number one thing is multi-language and not translation. But our technology allows for, because it's all cloud-based, for a commentator who speaks Portuguese, who's a real expert on the NBA and basketball, they're color commenting from their home in Rio de Janeiro and through NBA League Pass International, people are actually listening to the game in that version. And when we started working with the NBA on that, the audiences would swell to those specific games because they understood what was going on. Because when you think about sports, it's been the same format. It's been English only, one to many. Uh, and it's worked forever. But the reality is, if you start super serving audiences you're really addressing a couple of challenges that exist for every sports broadcast or sports league. You have eroding viewership over time, and then you have every sports league, sports broadcaster trying to reach that younger demographic. I mean, when you look at the average age of sports, the average age of a major league baseball fan is 57 years old. The average age of an NFL fan is 50. I think NBA might be around 42, and I think uh, hockey's around 49. And the big challenge is how do you stop erosion of viewership? You've got cord cutters. You've got a lot of things going. There's a lot of factors in that. Games are long, whatever it is, but the broadcasters need to figure out how to stop erosion. And the second thing is how do you reach that younger demographic, which is really the future and the viability of all these uh, sports broadcasts? What we discovered through technology is that as opposed to spending a lot of CapEx, OpEx, building out more studios, which is very expensive. Staffing is a challenge. Like when we talk to broadcasters, a big issue they're having right now is they, they, still, they can't get staff for producing more content. So by doing everything in the cloud, and that's what we do. We do video in the cloud, 
you're able to scale up more broadcasts, more alternate broadcasts. And you're starting to see all the league experimenting with things. Like I, I know that a couple of years ago, Amazon Prime, when they had Thursday Night Football, they still do, they had an all-female broadcasting cast, which is pretty amazing. Then you saw the NFL, there's the Nickelodeon playoff game with the New Orleans Saints for, for the NFL. You know, you're starting to see a lot of experimentation with alternate broadcasts because I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if this is the right thinking, but maybe they're getting bored with the same old guys talking about sports in a certain way. And by super serving audiences, you know, maybe it's different voices, maybe it's younger voices, maybe it's influencers. You know, I believe that in the aggregate, that sum will be larger than the one-to-many English-only type broadcasts. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I don't think I totally understood the landscape there. So mm-hmm. I've seen some of the spot experimentation you alluded to, but I, I guess I didn't, I didn't tie it together and realize what the sum total there is. You're taking essentially the same asset, which is the game or let's call it the feed, the broadcast. Mm-hmm. Yep essentially delivering it, ma- matching it to to the audience. So to your point, it could be I can have a kid's version that's the play-by-play is kids, or I could have the female version, or I could have the localized language version and any permutation there within. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that that was a movement. The other piece that 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 strikes me there is you mentioned the two factors around eroding viewership and the sort of demographic problem. It also seems like so many leagues have talked about trying to expand internationally. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this is a way to do that without even having to light up another franchise. It's not about like, let's go put a team in London. It's about let's take the product that should be able to export globally. And the the, the limitation was really just it was presented in a way that was, you know, middle-aged white American men, which is fine. They're professional, whatever, but they're, they're narrowing the reach. You know, when you think about what they do, they put millions of dollars investment into the single broadcast alone. But how do you scale it? And you can scale it through technology very economically, efficiently, also address some of the staffing issues. You don't have to fly talent back to the headquarters. They could do it from their home. So you're able to scale in a much more economic way and yet serve the different audiences. And I think it's also allowing for experimentation. You know, going back to the the playoff, the NFL playoff game that was broadcast in the Nickelodeon way on that channel, I read that Kurt Warner, Hall of Fame quarterback, said that that was the first time he ever watched an NFL game with his son because his son was never interested in the game that he's a Hall of Famer in. It was the first time they watched it on TV together because it it was you know, reaching his son's interests. So that's anecdotal, but we have, obviously, we can't share data, but there's a reason why it's growing more and more. You're starting to see a, a movement towards this. Amazon Prime just announced that they're going to have Dude Perfect, uh, those guys who do all those crazy trick plays, they're going to be announcing their version of Thursday Night Football on Amazon Prime. So you're starting to see experimentation, investments into alternate broadcast to really reach different audiences. Okay. So that's the sports vertical. What's the innovation in music? During a pandemic, people couldn't get to a concert. They were, they weren't allowed to go to anything, any kind of venues. But what happened before, before the pandemic, we were, we were talking to a bunch of artists and, and the issue for artists is this, they make a lot of their money on tour. That's where most of their revenue comes from. But the reality is 
there's geographical challenges for all their fans to get to whatever location, you know, if it's, if a kid's in Iowa, can you really get to Chicago? And then at the same time, the tickets are pretty expensive. Ticket prices can go, are like in the hundreds or mid hundreds, right? And so you've got two friction points that prevent some of their biggest, biggest fans from actually attending a live concert. So when you think about a tour for an artist, they can reach X amount of people because there's only certain venues they can get to, but their fan bases are much larger. And so in the world of live streaming, what we're doing is we are allowing people to be part of the concert experience. I was, I, I love being at concerts. I was just, I just went to three in the last five days. You know, I went to Silk Sonic with Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. I saw them here at Park MGM. And then I went to go see the weekend here at Allegiant Stadium, which is amazing. He's a phenomenal performer. Bruno is a phenomenal performer. And then I saw a Swedish House Mafia, which is like the very famous three uh, DJs. Uh, I love live, but I'm in the business of live streaming because we are addressing a need in the marketplace where people may not be able to get to a venue or they can't afford it, but it's a much more economical way of being part of that experience. With technology, like I said, we're trying to make it much more engaging as opposed to flicking on the TV and just sitting there on the couch, we want people to feel like they matter. Meaning, yes, the band is performing in front of 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden, perhaps, but we also want the band to feel like they are performing in front of like a million people that are out there live and that the people that are not at the stadium, they feel like they are part of the uh, in-venue experience. And so, the things like we do, like we up, you could upload fan videos and selfies, and it's literally part of the video experience. It's, it's, it's just kind of surrounds the actual band performing, the different chats, the cheer buttons, the emojis, a lot of things that you do actually on your mobile phone. We've kind of like incorporated into the experience, and it's pretty incredible. I know this sounds funny, but even cheer buttons get so much action because people just want to feel like they're they're part of the experience, and so. Our goal through interactive video on the concert side is to let people know that they matter. In several concerts that we worked on, and we, we, we just did Queen a month ago. We just did Josh Groban. We worked on 10 BTS concerts. They're, they're currently the biggest band in the world. When we stream with BTS, we're reaching nearly 200 countries. That's how many ticket buyers there are for BTS. 200 countries have purchased tickets for their live stream concert. So it just tells you, like, for an artist, they don't realize how big they are. They have fans everywhere. And we're just trying to make sure that they can reach their audiences, their fans, and make them feel like they're party experience. You talked about what it's like from the fans' point of view in terms of the tools and the technology they can leverage to participate in the event. Mm -hmm. Does the talent get a view of that? Like in the same way they have audio monitors where they can hear the performance and they can look out and they can see the crowd. What experience are they having of the remote fans, if any? What we do is we could put up a fan board in the venue. It's basically a global map. And the band can see through just like a concentrated like lights, I guess, on the global map. They can see where all the different places that the audience is watching from. Uh, in real time and they can do a global wave <laughs> by people cheering on those on those on those buttons other things that we've done is we've connected like 
light sticks, Bluetooth light sticks to the computer so that when they're performing in the home, those light sticks are are lighting up. Not 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 all bands have light sticks. It's more of a K-pop thing. But the band gets to see like, oh wow, there's like thousands, tens of thousands, maybe a hundred thousand people watching the concert in real time. So there's a board in venue in which they can see in real time and they can also see the chat in real time if they want to. Can I ask you a few questions that maybe have to do with some sort of prognostications about the music live stream space? First is, do, do you view it or does the company view it as something that an artist can or should do as part of every show? Or do you counsel artists to do maybe one special show, a tour, or only if the it's from a special location? Like, how do you think about that? I will say this. I don't think every artist should live stream. Uh, I don't think it works for all artists. From our data, obviously, younger artists perform better because their audience is more digitally native. It's, you know, they're used to buying things digitally. They're used to viewing things digitally. They're folks who are active on the different social media platforms. You know, I would say it's, it's tougher for the older bands because their audience, you know, may not be so digitally sad, uh, savvy. The other thing is we're seeing the economics of it as, as well. Like older bands have an older audience who are more established and have more income. Whereas like younger audiences may not have the income to go buy like a $300 ticket to go to a venue. So they're better served doing, doing live stream. You could do it two ways. For example, with the Queen concert, that was filmed from one of their sold out O2 arena concerts they i think they sold out nine ten straight o2 arena concerts that they're just it's just like a historically incredible band so in that viewing experience you saw the crowd it was just incredibly majestic it's, it was actually a beautiful beautiful live stream concert so there's that but then you can also curate something that's special and unique and that isn't exactly the tour concert so we counsel it in two ways you can make it easy by just doing your concert and we'll, and it's much more efficient and economical that way, or you could do a, a special one. And the good thing about special concerts is that it can be small venue. It can be big venue. It's all about whatever the artist wants to do to make it unique and special. That sort of dovetails into my, my second question along these lines, which is clearly there was that 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 pop in the live streaming space during COVID for all kinds of practical reasons. And live streaming is basically the modern word for webcast, which is, you know, <laughs> yeah. those, those of us with the gray beards like me remember. But, you know, webcasts of music never really caught on beyond being promotionally driven. You know, mm-hmm. it could be the opening night of a tour or maybe in the festival space, it was a little more mainstreamed. Mm-hmm. But they were generally not ticketed maybe sponsor-driven, certainly promotional in nature. Now we have the pandemic, which drives a lot of the the sort of the consumer paying ticket model into the live streaming space. But what now, coming out of COVID, when you can go back into the venue, I understand you're talking about some use cases where it may be a better fit for certain parts of the audience. You know, a younger audience doesn't have access to the cash, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But if the product is to be mainstreamed, what do you think the business model is? And ultimately, who's going to pay? Is it going to be the consumer or is it going to be a brand? It goes both ways. Because a lot of our business is pay-per-view. It is PPV. It is digital tickets. And in fact, we built out a 
ticking platform specific to this experience because we want to make sure that the artist gets as much money back. And so our ticking platform really doesn't take any money. It's just, it's just there to exist to make the user experience from ticketing to viewing very seamless. But we are looking into sponsorships and brands are very, very interested in it. And the feedback I got from brands is that they want to be part of culture. And that's why music is very important to them in terms of like investing into music, whether it's through live stream concerts, whether it's festivals, but it's because they want to be part of culture and be authentic. And so we are definitely getting a lot of great feedback from brands and their interest is very, very high. And also the great thing about music is that there's so many different genres that will meet different demographics of what the brand wants. If it's a younger demo, if it's an older demo, there's a brand for every different demo, of course. But I think that's where the, honestly, I think that's where the movement will go is more sponsored type live stream events. What does it take to be great in your space? So why would, let's pretend it's not about price. Let's pretend that, you know, you and two or three other companies are in there. It's down to the wire. What are you demonstrating that you're great at that's getting you chosen in the RFP process or whatever it is in your world? Like I said, the interactive part. Like if it was just a straight stream, I mean, it'd be easy for them to just put it on YouTube and just sell a ticket. I'm from Google. I was at Google for 10 years. I was there when Google bought YouTube. So I've, I've been through the YouTube journey. But everything at YouTube and Google is all about scale. So they don't really customize anything. What we do very well, it, it's about customization, different bells and whistles and features that we can enable to make the experience much more engaging. And also from an artist's perspective, it's about monetization. You know, it's about different types of ticketing bundles. It's about being able to purchase things in the actual user experience. Like if they want to buy merch, they could do it within the experience. They don't have to go off site. They don't have to go to a different retail site. We create all this creative around emojis, special emojis for the artists so that someone can buy packs of emojis. So we try to customize and personalize things for the artists and for their for their audiences. And the other thing is, it's all about confidence in that we can deliver at a global scale. I mean, live streaming is really hard. And unfortunately, there's a lot of stories out there where things don't get off the ground. It's, it's really hard delivering video. If I go back to the BTS example, we're delivering to 190 some countries in real time. Think about all the different network capabilities across all these countries and the bandwidth challenges. And yet we need to deliver the same music experience that's in the U.S. as well as for the person in the Philippines, as well for the person in you know, London. So live streaming is hard. Thank you, Keely and Kizwi. We'll be back with more Spotlight On and our final guest for the week, Michael Porter of Needle Music, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On and our final guest for the week, Michael Porter. All right, so I need to learn all about Needle. But before I get to the specifics of that, can you tell me, like, what what point of view do you come at the problem you're trying to solve from? And maybe as a start, maybe articulate the problem you want to solve. 
Yeah, it certainly evolved over time, but at inception, we really came at it from a consumer's point of view where, you know, we have social media, which is the growing technology for consumers over the last decade or two. And then we have the streaming industry, which has largely been innovated upon over the last 10 or 20 years as well. So these two industries have converged and risen at the similar times. And we've just seen the convergence of those two industries where now you have the biggest social media platform is largely based upon music with TikTok. But there was no consumer platform. There's no social media specifically geared and designed for music curation, music discovery, and really just connecting through the medium of music. So that's at the heart of, of our problem of what we're trying to do is make music more social or have a social layer built on top of all the streaming services where people can interact in a free-flowing manner. So that's really um, kind of the genesis of, of how Needle came to be. And it's certainly evolved into something much greater and much more exciting than that. But if you boil it down, it's just really trying to sit at the intersection of the social and the music industries. What, where were you coming at it from personally? Were you a, were you a technologist, yes. a music guy? <laughs> So I was just a frustrated consumer and music lover where I was texting song playlists to my friends on a very regular basis, or I'd get to see what my friends were listening to based on their Instagram story of a, of a screenshot of a song or an album artwork. So it was really just trying to find a more efficient, streamlined, and fun way to find and share music between people. So the kind of standard way to share music right now is texting a playlist to someone. You know, if you do that, if I text you a playlist, I have no idea what songs on that playlist you're actually engaging with, you're liking, you're listening to, you're adding to your playlists. And then on the flip side of that, there's just no reason or way for, for us to easily interact across different streaming services. If you have Spotify, I have Apple, someone else has SoundCloud, you send me a playlist, I'm going to just go look it up on my own streaming services. And it's just a fragmented process right now. So what's the needle solution? It's just a platform. Right now we're in beta, so we're just built on top of Spotify. But we have plans to integrate with Apple, SoundCloud, Deezer, most of the major, major streaming services. But really what it is, is it's just serving to enhance those streaming services by providing a more social way to consume music. So whether it's me posting a song and broadcasting it to my friends and followers, what I'm listening to for a particular moment, for an activity, or just for any given day. And then on the flip side of that, when I'm in the mood to discover music, you know, I want to, uh, at my leisure, be able to tap into different people's music, whether or not I'm in the mood for rap music or house music or things of that nature. You know, music is so inherently social but there's no platform that really capitalizes on the inherent socialness of music. When you talk about sort of future integrations, what does that look like? Is it do, do the services that you need and want to integrate with publish APIs that anybody can integrate with, or does it actually require you to go out and do deals with them? Yeah. So we've spoken to some of them, but luckily what we're trying to do is just increase the size of the pie of music streaming and consumption and engagement. So people that have more fun listening to music on me and they do Spotify are going to spend more time listening to music. So really everything that happens on our platform gives those streams to those underlying services. So it really is a beneficial relationship 
So yeah, most of those streaming services had public APIs. Some of them had partnership APIs, of course, too, that allow third-party platforms like ourselves and many others to integrate with, to use their catalog of music and to just drive streams, to drive subscriptions, just drive their core performance indicators and their core metric to their platform through outside kind of sources. So, you know, we've already had hundreds of people buy Spotify's premium subscriptions just from wanting to use Needle. So, you know, it really is just a complementary relationship. Why do you think sort of as a general point, the streaming platforms have kind of either done so poorly with integrating socials or at the other extreme, maybe kind of just seeded the ground and not really made this part of their product? Because it, to your point, it, it does seem like a natural sort of user expectation, user experience, user activity, sharing music. You know, it's, it's like it's not new to digital, right? I, I could make you a mixtape or whatever it is. Why is the opportunity there? What did they miss? Well, we think there's there's a lot that's been missed, but you know, in our eyes, it's just the timing and the market and the consumers are now ready for it, where social media has been enough to capture people's attention. The excitement of having hundreds of millions of songs at the swipe of your thumb has been enough to to keep Spotify as the leader in the streaming service space. But now as you see more social music platforms coming together that capitalize on both of those industries. We feel that TikTok being first to dip their toe in this in this water, now the consumers are hungry and ready for platform that encapsulates both social and music and brings the best best of both worlds to one platform. So I don't I just know that our consumers love it, our users love it, our community of music curators and listeners love to connect with other people through the medium of music. And that's really what it's about at the end of the day is uplifting people through music, through the only universal language and just creating positivity through social interaction and music listening. What role does the platform play for sort of each of the constituents you mentioned? So why will an artist love this sort of maybe restate why a fan would love it? And and what does it do for a curator that, that they can't do already for themselves? There's a few really exciting propositions and just opportunities and way to leverage needle regardless or depending on who you are. So starting at the base layer of just a casual music listener and lover, it's just a more fun and a better way to find music and stay connected to men's. So for example, we have a song save rate on the app of 50%, which means that one out of every two songs you're going to listen to on the platform, chances are you're going to like or save one of them. It's kind of proven one of our initial theses, which was there's no other way to find music than through your friends. So that is clear that people want to see who their favorite artist, who their favorite friend, who their favorite influencer, what they're listening to. And they're more likely to enjoy a song with someone that they have a personal connection with than just an algorithm feeding them a song, which is really the only way you can discover music right now. So there's that social component that you know we already have. I, 10 plus people that I know that are dating or, or, you know, casually seeing each other as a result of meeting on needles. So it's just a fun way to facilitate connections and to find good music for your friends. So that's the base layer. One level above that is your DJ, your local curator, and the people in a friend group that always have the Oscar, right? Everyone knows those people that really have their thumb on the needle with new music. And so we really wanted to present a space for them to showcase their ability and to give their gift of music curation in a more streamlined way. 
So we're envisioning a world where you actually can monetize your music curation, where you can pay for access to playlists, where you can get commissioned playlists from music curators. And we already have the thread of discovery on Needle where you can see how music moves across a group of people and where it started, which we call song credit. But we really just want to allow people to uh, use their gift of music curation in more ways than just making a SoundCloud mix or having to actually be in a room DJing physically where you could leverage technology to make those gift and, and opportunities available through remote technology. So that's number two. And then for the artist perspective, it's really exciting because we know what artists wear, we know who they date, we know what they eat on a daily basis, but we don't know necessarily what music they're listening to. So there's a lot of artists and DJs that will use Instagram to post screenshots on their story of songs they're listening to. And I'm sure a lot of their fans go and then look those songs up on Spotify and listen to it and have a really fun, great experience knowing that they found that music through one of their favorite artists or influencers. But imagine if you as the artist or influencer could see everyone in real time that's engaging with your music, what they're doing with their music, then how it spreads to their network just by you influencing their consumption. So we really see it as a viable opportunity for artists to influence music consumption from their fans and to connect with their fans in the best medium possible or in the most intimate way possible through music where i would much rather see what asap rocky or lady gaga is listening to on a daily basis than what outfit they wore to dinner last night with all due respect to their probably amazing outfit so then there's also the business opportunity side of things where a lot of artists are signing new artists right and to be able to broadcast the awareness to up and coming indie artists we think is really exciting from a celebrity influencer perspective but really artists at the end of the day are music lovers first so there should be a way for them to connect to their fans through music as opposed to just photos or tweets and things of that nature can you go back and tell me a little bit about something you alluded to when you were first speaking which was where you started you were much more focused on the consumer i think that's what you said but what however you exactly word it you alluded to the fact that maybe your model or or who you're focusing on has evolved and could you talk a little bit about that like how as you've released the product into the wild through the beta period what are you learning and how is it changing how you think about the product and who it's for i think what i was referencing is just the fact that we created needle as a consumer and from a need that we had, which was to create a better way to find and share music through people. So that was kind of our initial approach. And what we've seen from having Needle be downloaded by tens of thousands of people and from talking to some of our top users as to why they like the product, it's really the connections that people are forming through music is what is so magical about this platform. So we're really now crafting the product enhance people's ability to connect with others through music and the artists and the existing local DJs and curators in communities are a big part of that where they already have the built-in demand for their music curation. So we really wanted to make sure that our platform was built to serve those people while also not forgetting about the fabric of our product, which is the friend-to-friend, peer-to-peer social music discovery, facilitating those connections between people. The vulgar question is, how do you make money? 
<laughs> of course. Well, we have a few exciting ways to make money. One really simple one to imagine is the fact that we're really creating an ecosystem of music influencers at the end of the day. And through this ecosystem of music curators and influencers, we're actually now going to be able to churn music through our platform. So for record labels or artists that want to break, and we've already had some proof of concept artists inbound DMing us to, to trend music on the app and to showcase their new releases and things in nature. So we're going to help people get more exposure and promote their music. So it won't be through ads, but it'll be through songs, right? Which is so exciting. So we really are going to focus on not watering down the product to monetize like most social media companies, but we're actually going to provide value and showcase songs that we think our users will like in the form of a song. So there's some more innovative ways that that we're looking to create revenues as well, but that's a really simple one to explain. As a user, let's just say on, on the consumer side, a fan, when you wake up in the morning and you're going to fire up your app that you listen to music through, does Needle change where you start your day? Like, do you start your listening experience in Needle or do you still start on the native streaming service? Like, what's the flow? When do I go from my streaming service to Needle and vice versa? So it's been really important for us to make sure that regardless of your consumer habits, that Needle is strictly a beneficial product. So you don't have to use Needle. You can use it for your entirety of your music consumption, listening, engagement, curation. The only time in the last year and a half that I have not used Needle to listen to music is when I'm on an airplane and I don't have Wi-Fi because right now you need Wi-Fi and connectivity to use the platform. But a lot of our users have similar habits where they do their entire listening on Needle. And obviously you have the benefit of being able to see who's engaging with your music and broadcasting your music as well from there. But we also have a lot of people that just use Needle to showcase their songs here and there or just to listen to one or two people whose music they care about or just when they're in the mood to discover music on a long road trip. So every song you like on the app automatically saves to your streaming service, in our case right now, Spotify. So it's a really easy UI UX for anyone, regardless of what your consumer habits are between the streaming service and Needle. But the great thing is that everything you can do in Spotify, you can also do in Needle. Gotcha. So did you guys have to rebuild? Did you build basically an interface into the platform or like, how does it, how does that work from sort of a product technology point of view? Like if I'm, if, if, if needle becomes my consumption point for music, what did you have to duplicate that's in a streaming service? Yeah. I mean, we have all your playlists on Spotify in the app. We have a profile page that showcases you know, your songs in rotation, your top playlists. We even have a media section where you can pull in photos and videos of you listening to music. We're getting to being able to pull in third-party links, whether it's TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, things of that nature, concert tickets that you're going to, things like that, kind of creating your audio biography or, you know, life in music per se. And then some other pillars of our product are group messaging features. So we have groups built around genres. We have groups built around locations. We have groups built around a particular concert. So there's all these micro communities being grown and thriving and ever evolving every day on the platform. And then we also have a song of the day feed, which you can post one time per day. It's kind of like a radio station curated by your friends. And that's more for your casual discovery. How do you prioritize as a founder 
as somebody who's now a tech entrepreneur, how do you, how do you figure out your product roadmap and how do you decide what features? Because I would imagine in everything we've talked about for the last 20 minutes or so, it represents a lot of potential paths you could go down. How do you think about that as a business owner? Some great advice I got early on was, you know, it's a lot easier to try and do everything than it is to be really killer at one thing. So we really were trying to be simplistic in our approach and streamlined in the core value that we can bring our our users. So we just started very simply with like a top eight songs of any given moment that you can create every day and you could tag it like workout, party, things of that nature to help people find music for particular moments. Then we evolved into the song of the day feed and that was just based on user feedback. So really at the core of everything we do is talking to our users, both new and established, seeing what they're liking, what they want, what they wish they could do both on needle and on just in general in their life of music consumption. And that really is our North star is our users is our community without them. We're nothing. So we have a lot of internal debates and discussions between our team and our developers and our C-level team and Really, everything comes back to talking to our users one-on-one, doing Google Docs, doing surveys, asking people what's working, what's not, what do they want to see. We have a group on our platform of just our top 100 users. So that's really a great place for us to be interacting and talking on a day-to-day with some of our most adept music curators and listeners. You mentioned early on that you were solving a problem for yourself, essentially, uh, to paraphrase that, you know, as a consumer, you were looking for for ways to mix your music and social. And I wonder, as you've released it, especially to those top 100 sort of power users or best users, has there been something about the way people are using the platform that surprised you or that you said, oh, I, you know, I, I never would have thought of that or I wouldn't have done that or I didn't think I needed that? Is, is, there, is there an adoption that, that has been surprising? I was pretty surprised at how excited people were about groups and how many people have actually made in real life relationships and friendships from the platform. We started this thing with three users, right? There's three co-founders and it's since ballooned and, and it grows every day. So I'll see one user get on and then I'll see another user get on and I start to see them giving song credit to each other, which is kind of reposting each other's music. And I'll see you know, that maybe respond to each other in a group. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's so great. They're becoming friendly. And then two months later, I'll find out, oh, they're actually best friends now. So really seeing how connected people feel to us who share their same music taste has been really exciting for me. And I would go as far to argue as saying that there's no better indicator of whether you're going to get along with someone than a shared love and interest in music and in a particular genre of music. So that's what we've seen. And that's something that we're actively creating some product opportunities for. But the other side of of that, that kind of touches on that is I've been pleasantly surprised. And I think maybe I had hoped this initially, but didn't know if it would ever come to fruition is how many people are kind of dating now from the platform or, you know, or at least romantically involved in some way or another. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that it is really exciting to to get to meet someone that shares your music tapes and it you're skipping to the 10th day just with 10 songs per se. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've alluded to that a couple of times and it, it has me wondering, is there a dating app implication of this? I mean that that strikes me as you're you've you've sort of you've walked into a very interesting potential opportunity. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a few companies try and do the music dating apps type play, and 
it's certainly an opportunity in the future that we actively think about, but even more exciting to us than the dating app play, because that's a small sliver of relationships and people connecting is actually just being able to connect with other people, guy, girl, same sex, different sex, whether you're romantically interested or not through music. I want to make new friends. I want to connect with business people. I want to connect with people that I may be romantically interested. I just want to meet new people through music because there's just that base layer of similarity, that understanding. We think that music is the best medium to create some shared understanding between two people of different cultures. And who knows where this will go in the future, but that's really that broader opportunity is what excites us even more than, than just focusing on helping people date. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, I like it. I think, uh, I think we've got a good understanding. I think what I'd like to do is um, I'm going to become an Edel user for a while. I'd love to connect with you on there. Yeah, see how that goes. I want to see just if if my musical taste is as bizarre and lonely as it seems sometimes. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> we, we, you will find someone that has eerily similar music taste to you on the app. That's uh, that's what I can promise. But yeah, that's an interesting aspect of it, right? Like kids who, especially for younger people who are maybe alienated and feel like they're getting all the negatives of social media without any of the real human connection. Yeah, I mean, it gives me goosebumps even hearing you say that because it's so important to us as a company. To this point, we still don't have comments on the platform or captions because of this. We didn't want there to be any space for negativity on the platform. We really want to have a social media that uplifts its users where, you know, most social medias, people feel worse after using the platform or the product than when they first got on it. We want it to be the exact opposite of that. We want to bring joy to your life from you finding your next favorite song through someone you are either know or someone that you may get to know now through the platform. It's so easy to just post the song and then see who likes it. And to the other side of that, be able to scroll through music and be able to form some, some type of real human connection just through a shared love of a song. Thank you so much, Michael Porter of Needle Music, Keely of Kiswi, as well as Jesse Kirschbaum and Clayton Durant. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On!, which is powered by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Don't forget to visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at Spotlight on Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Mm-hmm.